Hello and welcome. I'm Dr. Ajay Singh. On behalf of CME Outfitters, I would like to welcome you and thank you for joining us for today's CMEO briefcase entitled Challenges in Anemia in CKD. Today's program is supported by an educational grant from GSK. Just to go over my um, introduction and background, I'm a senior nephrologist at Brigham and Women's Hospital, and uh, that's in Boston, uh, and senior associate dean for postgraduate medical education at Harvard Medical School. Let's just go over the learning objectives for today's presentation. The goal of this activity is to utilize the latest data on novel therapies in clinical decision-making to address unmet needs uh, in the treatment of anemia due to CKD. And what I'd like to do first uh, is to uh, showcase this uh, discussion really with a case. And, and the patient's case is as follows. Eugene is a 65-year-old male who presents for discussion regarding treatment with erythropoietin stimulating agent, or ESA, uh, and for the adjustment of iron supplementation. Uh, Eugene's past medical history, he has end-stage renal disease. He has type 2 diabetes. That's the cause of his end-stage renal disease anemia, and chronic kidney disease. Um, he's a, a person uh, of African-American descent um, who presents uh, with uh, a past history also notable for a hospitalization due to infection recently, uh, which was treated with intravenous antibiotics. He undergoes dialysis at home three times a week. His lab findings are shown uh, his hemoglobin is 9.2 grams per deciliter, a serum iron of 42, transferrin of 470, an iron binding capacity of 588, uh, and a serum ferritin of 10 nanograms per mil. Um, this all translates into a transferrin saturation or TSAT of 7%. Now, it is important uh, to recognize that his hemoglobin level of 9.2 is below the usual threshold for optimal control of his hemoglobin. Um, the uh, FDA guidance would say that the hemoglobin level should be uh, between 10 to 11 grams per deciliter. And depending on the guideline you read, whether it's uh, the European guidelines or, or the KDGO guidelines, most guidelines will say keep the hemoglobin above 10 grams per deciliter. The European guidelines say keep it below 12, and um, uh, KDGO is 10 to 11 grams per deciliter. So he's <clears throat> below uh, the target hemoglobin that we uh, expect him to be at. The other important point here is that his um, uh, TSAT is 7%, and this 7% is lower than what guidelines would suggest is satisfactory. Guidance says keep the TSAT at um, around 20%, and 7% is obviously much lower than that. The data also su suggests that um, the source of this iron deficiency, if you will, is a reduction in iron source, because as you know, ferritin is a very good measure of body stores of iron, and his ferritin level is 10 nanograms per mil. The guidance would say keep the ferritin level uh, above 100 nanograms per mil. So this, so this is a person, I think, who's clearly anemic. The anemia is most likely uh, because of iron deficiency, and iron deficiency not just a, a deficiency in availability of iron, which can sometimes happen in inflamed patients, but a deficiency in uh, total iron stores. Let's now look at the pathophysiology of the anemia of chronic kidney disease. On the left-hand side, what you see um, are 
some of the factors that lead to anemia in patients. Probably the most important factor is, uh, is, is erythropoietin deficiency. As most of you know, erythropoietin in adults is produced in the kidneys by proximal tubular epithelial cells. And there's a response to reduce oxygen um, as measured by uh, hemoglobin circulating around that triggers erythropoietin release. But in general though, um, the cause of anemia of CKD is actually multifactorial. Uh, patients who have chronic kidney disease uh, on dialysis or even those not on dialysis are generally inflamed and this inflammation reduces erythropoietin production um, and also red blood cell lifespan. Second, excess hepcidin impairs iron absorption and mobilization of iron body stores. It's important to note that hepcidin, a, a protein that's secreted by the liver, um, is excreted by the kidneys. So, and that high hepcidin levels, elevated hepcidin levels, lead to uh, an impairment of absorption of iron through um, the GI tract. So, as kidney disease progresses, uh, hepcidin le um, levels in the blood increase, and hepcidin uh, in, in elevated um, levels. Um, reduces absorption of iron. And last but not least, uh, blood loss from uh, the, the process of dialysis uh, can also be a factor. And indeed, blood loss from frequent blood draws are also um, a factor as well. On the right-hand side, what you see is a schematic that demonstrates some of these factors into uh, um, weaving with each other. There's disrupted renal oxygen sensing. Uh, this is because of the kidney becoming diseased, proximal tubular epithelial cells are not effective in sensing reduced oxygen, and there's reduced uh, um, uh, production of EPO. There's inflammation uh, that resu results in reduced EPO production, um, reduced red cell lifespan, and, ex and excess hepcidin for the reasons I've already discussed. Um, and of course, on the um, you can't uh, um, uh, walk away from the importance of uremic toxins, which also play a role in creating a milieu that reduces uh, erythropoiesis, but also um, reduces lifespan of red cells. All of this play an important role in causing anemia. On the side, you see um, the left-hand side, you see blood loss, which we've discussed through either the dialyzer or through frequent blood draws, and on the right, iron deficiency, uh, either uh, functional or relative iron deficiency because the iron is not adequately mobilized, um, it's stuck in storage sites, um, or absolute iron deficiency uh, where there is actually a reduced re um, um, availability of iron through reduced stores. This generally can occur in patients, for example, who are bleeding. Occult bleeding is quite common in dialysis patients. Reduced intake of iron-rich foods um, are important factors. If we go to the next slide, we see that um, um, the data on under-management and under-diagnosis of anemia. This is data from Dr. Zhu uh, and uh, Dr. Wang and Dr. Farrington and co colleagues. And what this data shows in, in quite a large um, uh, analysis of patient data, 45,000, 6,000, 705 million people um, shown on the top panel, uh, that about 26% of patients develop anemia in total. Uh, 15 of these uh, receive a diagnosis of anemia and about 10, 19% of patients actually receive treatment. 
Of this 45,000, uh, about 10% have severe anemia, uh, and about 68% of patients actually have the diagnosis of anemia, and only about 43% of these patients actually receive treatment, uh, demonstrating that there's both uh, an underdiagnosis and an undermanagement. In the second cohort, you see that uh, of about 6,766 patients, 40% of patients have a hemoglobin of less than 10 uh, and have received anemia medication within a year. And on the right-hand side is data from over 5 million individuals. 20% uh, of these individuals had uh, advanced CKD uh, with low hemoglobin. Less than 4% were treated with an ESA. And uh, remarkably, iron testing was infrequent. So I think in, in, in aggregate, this data shows that there's a significant need um, uh, in patients, an unmet need uh, with respect to anemia uh, in patients with advanced CKD. Turn to the next um, slide. Um, what you see here is um, IV iron supplementation uh, as a treatment. And as, as you recall in our case with Eugene, uh, he had... Um, absolute iron deficiency as, as measured by a very low serum ferritin as well as a low TSAT. And in dialysis patients, because of the fact that absorption of iron by the GI tract is significantly impaired uh, because of these high hepcidin levels, um, intravenous iron supplementation is necessary to supplement iron and to bring iron levels up and treat the anemia. But we have to balance risks uh, with benefits. The first important factor is that intravenous iron overcomes this hepcidin-induced blockade of iron, uh, both uh, re uh, released from macrophages and those who have functional iron deficiency, but also it overcomes this block um, and uh, in reduced absorption of iron by the enterocyte in the GI tract. There are um, benefits of I IV iron, and there are also risks of IV iron. The benefits shown here are, of course, you avoid absorption issues associated with iron uh, being administered orally. And, and recall that um, iron taken orally does have side effects in of itself, bloating, uh, sort of a tummy upset, black stools, uh, nausea and vomiting are sometimes um, uh, uh, adverse events that have been noted in patients taking intravenous iron. The other benefits of intravenous iron in that there's faster and higher uh, and quicker increase in hemoglobin levels and at least in, in, in some populations of patients that have been looked at, particularly those with heart failure, uh, there's improvement in patient um, domains of quality of life. On the other side, you see risks of IV iron. Some of these risks are actually hypothetical um, based on observational data. So you can rightly question uh, the validity of this data, but some data has suggested uh, that there's a higher rate of infections. Uh, in fact, um, in, 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 in cell culture, if you take iron and, uh, uh, and infuse it into cell culture medium, neutrophils appear to function less well, but there hasn't been clear evidence that um, uh, iron, intravenous iron increases the risk of infections, more of a hypothetical risk. CV events also hypothetical. There isn't um, clear data that supports this contention, uh, although it has been hypothesized. Uh, the data from the pivotal study that was published um, by Ian McDougall and colleagues actually put to rest some of these concerns. Uh, and then there is a risk of anaphylaxis, mostly uh, in the use of iron dextran, uh, where there seems to be an increased risk of uh, anaphylaxis with rapid infusion of iron.
If you go to the next slide, you see um, uh, ESA treatment, uh, and again, a similar approach of balancing risks with benefits. Um, some of these risks are clearly um, hypothetical, and some of them have been borne out from the literature. Uh, in general, um, we know that uh, in injecting patients uh, with intravenous iron uh, at dialysis um, or in non-dialysis patients um, uh, by a subcutaneous injection uh, results in pulsatile erythropoiesis. Um, because what you have is um, a sudden increase in um, erythropoietin levels and that erythropoietin level goes down. So the sudden increase in erythropoietin levels increases erythropoiesis in, in a pulsatile manner. Uh, there's also uh, consequently an, a transient increased demand for iron. Uh, and it's possible that higher doses of ESA administered exogenously decrease hepcidin. Uh, and all of this may have some um, uh, associated side effects. Shown on the left are the benefits. Uh, obviously, treating uh, with ESAs um, accords increased tissue oxygenation because of higher hemoglobin levels. Uh, there's some data that suggests increased uh, or beneficial uh, improvement in physical performance um, measured uh, with um, standardized quality of life instruments and a lower transfusion rate. On the right-hand side, there are some risks. Um, there's a risk of thromboembolic events. Um, for example, um, there was a risk of higher rate of vascular thrombosis in patients um, that were evaluated in the normal hematocrit trial. This is a randomized trial published in the late 19, um, in the late 1990s uh, that showed that treatment to higher hemoglobin level in stable hemodialysis patients resulted in increased rate of vascular thromboembolism. And Ian McDougall and others have shown that um, in, um, in uh, patients treated with exogenous erythropoietin may have a higher risk of pure red cell aplasia. We're now going to spend some time on uh, audience response. And um, the first question is, if Eugene was started on anemia therapy, what would be his risk of discontinuation at 12 months? And I'd like you to answer this question. So this, uh, the answer for this uh, audience response question is shown on this next slide, and you can see what the right answer is. Uh, let's now discuss this. Um, there is a risk of discontinuing ESAs. Uh, and shown here uh, is a, um, a, a frustration by the patient index, if you will. Um, about 30% of patients um, generally discontinue because they're not satisfied with treatment. About half of patients um, are dissatisfied because there's no or few improvements in symptoms. Uh, about 19% of unsatisfied patients um, report inconvenient monitoring requirements about 15% uh, report diminished quality of life, paradoxically, of course. And um, it's generally uh, the case that there's a 12-month rate of discontinuation of anemia therapy of around 51%. These are usually, this is data in non-dialysis CKD patients. Um, the challenges uh, with administration, of course, are subcutaneous administration versus intravenous administration. We know that subcutaneous administration, particularly of or double poison, is associated with increased stinging, which is often a frequent complaint by patients, uh, and that home therapies are difficult. Caregivers frequently administer ESAs to patients, and so um, it's uh, often inconvenient. Uh, and um, uh, pat you know, patients don't like injections, but uh, caregivers also don't like 
Let's look at uh, treatment options. Uh, and here we uh, are uh, discussing different forms of intravenous iron formulations. And shown on this table are uh, the formulations on the left, the dose in the middle uh, column, and frequency on the right-hand side. And uh, you see that you have formulations um, at the top end that include iron sucrose, uh, and at the bottom of this table, iron dextran. Uh, the most uh, traditional, uh, oldest um, version of intravenous iron is iron dextran, uh, doses of between 500,000 milligrams and uh, at variable frequency. In uh, iron dextran, many people will recall, is something that is a, is a treatment that, unless you do it correctly, administered slowly with a test dose, uh, you may um, have associated um, I, uh, risk of anaphylaxis, although the risk is relatively small. Um, the newer ones are actually much more well-tolerated. Uh, and depending on the contract the dialysis provider has, um, you, you know, patients will be exposed to one or the other. They're pretty similar, except for ferrimoxitol, which can be administered very rapidly in an injection. Uh, in terms of expense, um, all, almost all of them are very similar in prices, except for ferrimoxitol, which is probably the most expensive and an iron dextran, which is probably the least expensive. If you go to the next slide, uh, you see treatment options for erythropoietin stimulating agents. The most common agent used in the United States right now is ipoetin alpha or, or ipoetin alpha and as a, with its analog. Uh, so ipoetin alpha could, uh, in dialysis patients, its analog is darbopoietin um, and a, a, a pegylated version of, of ipoetin alpha, which is Ipotent alpha EBBX has also emerged as a approved treatment. And so these are the agents that are generally used in, in, among dialysis patients. Um, in, 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 in general, the things to know about these agents is that there are black box warnings. Um, we published a study called the QUIRE trial, uh, which uh, in 2006 in the New England Journal of Medicine. Uh, this was a, a study of non-dialysis CKD patients that was associated uh, with a higher risk of patients um, uh, among those who were treated to a higher hemoglobin. These were non-dialysis CKD patients treated with uh, ipoetin alpha. And there was an increased risk of cardiovascular endpoints and mortality driven by mostly mortality and heart failure hospitalization in the group uh, where, um, where, where there was a target hemoglobin of 13 uh, grams per deciliter and an achieved hemoglobin in the in that group with the higher risk of 11.3 gram per deciliter on average. Um, the QUIRE trial resulted in a black box, but that black box really built on work that was published um, uh, about uh, 10 years earlier uh, in the normal hematocrit trial, which was a trial in stable dialysis patients aiming for uh, normalizing the hemoglobin and reported again a higher risk of mortality or MI in patients treated to the higher hemoglobin. That study also reported a higher rate of vascular thrombosis. In the um, use of uh, in dialysis patients, it's usually given three times a week if it's epid and if it's darbopoietin, uh, it's usually administered less frequently because it's extended, uh, uh, extended half-life. Uh, concerns about uh, these drugs uh, inc include a, a higher risk of malignancy. This was um, uh, data that came from the TREAT study where there was a higher rate of um, malignancy-related death in patients uh, treated with, with darbopoietin alpha. Uh, this higher rate of malignancy was not shown in dialysis patients, um, 
but uh, as I said, in, in non-dialysis patients in the TREAT study, there was a signal in a small subset of patients. There's, there's uh, reported to be a higher rate of hypertension. This is still controversial because in some studies, a higher rate of hypertension has not been reported. So it's a little controversial. But generally, the, the literature supports um, a higher rate of hypertension patients treated with EPO versus those not treated with EPO. Uh, and then there is this hypothetical risk of seizures and uh, pure red cell aplasia that has also been that has also been raised based on a review of the literature. Looking at other treatment options, double pointed alpha. Uh, this uh, has a black box warning um, uh, that emanates from the treat trial. Uh, there was a higher um, incidence of stroke um, in patients who had a prior history of stroke. The rate was actually meaningfully elevated, and there was a higher rate of um, um, of death uh, in um, associated with malignancies. Um, these two risks um, were um, cited in the KDGO guidelines with respect to the use of these agents. Um, Dabapoitin can be uh, dosed weekly or biweekly. Um, in general, uh, one point that you should note is that there's no difference in uh, epoidin alpha or dabapoitin alpha with respect to efficacy, where e efficacy uh, is correction of hemoglobin. Uh, let's move to the newer kids on the block. Uh, these are hypoxia-inducible uh, factor prolyl hydroxylase inhibitors, or HIF-PHIs. These agents uh, increase the uptake of iron and endogenous uh, erythropoietin release. Um, they also uh, inhibit downstream effects of hepcidin. Um, they may increase uh, iron that's available for erythropoiesis by increasing intestinal iron absorption and decreasing iron sequestration. The effect of HIF-PHIs on hepcidin have been well noted, uh, cause a, a, a decrease in hepcidin levels. But what hasn't been um, so clearly delineated is how and um, what uh, beneficial effects of hepcidin result from this. Um, uh, it's hypothesized that there's increased absorption of iron and increased mobilization of iron in iron storage sites, but this has not uh, been demonstrated as yet in any convincing fashion. Um, these are oral formulations uh, that uh, serve to increase uh, and improve the ease of use and convenience for home dialysis patients. Um, and they may avoid issues associated with some of these treatments, such as infections, thrombosis, stroke, malignancies. Um, although uh, in all the trials that have been done so far, um, um, HIF-PHIs have been shown to be non-inferior to conventional ESA. So we really don't know that they're superior to um, uh, conventional ESAs in any of these domains. If we move to the audience response question here, um, the question is which HIF-PHI treatments are available for use and should be considered with outpatient Eugene? Uh, and you have the uh, five choices um, of, uh, that you can choose from. The uh, answer uh, is shown in this next slide, um, and uh, it's C, uh, a protostat. Um, and the reason for that is that's the only approved treatment in stable hemodialysis patients in the United States currently. Let's now turn to some of the data with respect to HIF-PHIs, and first focus our attention on Roxadustat or Roxadustat. Uh, they uh, uh, presented their data as pooled analyses from three phase three clinical trials. Um, and these trials included Sierras, Himalayas, and Rockies, where they compared 
a potent alpha uh, in dialysis dependency getting patients uh, to uh, roxatostat. Uh, and uh, the trials reported that roxatostat was non-inferior to conventional ESA. And cardiovascular outcomes also non-inferior to conventional ESA. And the table shows in incident dialysis patients and stable dialysis patients, the uh, comparatives with re respect to MACE, MACE plus, and all-cause mortality. Um, and the only notable thing here uh, is that among stable dialysis patients, um, there was a higher hazard for MACE, um, 1.18. Um, it wasn't statistically significant because of the confidence interval from 1 to 1.38, but it's right on the border, and there's an 18% higher risk of MACE in these patients. Uh, and um, for all-cause mortality, the rate was hazard was 1.23, a 23% higher rate. Uh, but here, there was a statistically significant increase because uh, this confidence interval was 1.02 to 1.49. Um, because of this data and concerns about increased rate of thrombovenous embolism, Roxatostat was voted down 12 to 2 by the US FDA for approval for dialysis dependent patients. And it was also voted down again based on data from the Matterhorn trial measuring need for transfusion in anemia associated with myelodysplastic syndrome. Turning to um, Vatidustat, um, there are two phase three trials, PROTECT and INNOVATE. Uh, PROTECT was in non-dialysis patients and INNOVATE was in dialysis patients. Uh, again, the comparison was to dabapoitin alpha. And the with respect to efficacy outcome, Vatidustat was non-inferior to uh, dabapoitin alpha. Um, the cardiovascular outcomes um, it failed to demonstrate um, non-inferiority for PROTECT, which was a non-dialysis uh, study, uh, but was non-inferior uh, to conventional ESA in, in the dialysis uh, study, INNOVATE. Um, and um, the most important concern that was raised by the US FDA when they reviewed Validustat was uh, the lack of uh, non-inferiority in non-dialysis patients and um, a signal for drug-induced liver injury. When you look at the time to first MACE uh, for Valadusat uh, compared to conventional ESA uh, here, Dabapoitin, you see that for PROTECT, it was 1.01 to 1.36 was the confidence interval. So it failed non-inferiority. And for INNOVATE, uh, it was 0.83 to 1.11 and it met non-inferiority. So Valadustat was not approved by the US FDA, uh, but um, uh, the NDA has been resubmitted uh, for patients on dialysis and, and a decision by the FDA currently is pending. Um, last but not least, let's talk about um, uh, the ASCEND clinical trial um, program. Uh, ASCEND-D was a phase three trial of 2,964 patients that uh, compared Deprotostat to dabapoitin alpha. Uh, the deprotostat dose of 4 to 12 milligrams tablet orally administered in dialysis patients. These were stable dialysis patients um, recruited after 90 days of um, uh, initiation of dialysis. Uh, and uh, we're looking at, uh, there were two uh, efficacy outcomes, uh, correction of hemoglobin uh, and um, MACE. Um, and for both, uh, deprotostat was non-inferior to conventional ESA. Uh, and as you, I just pointed out, conventional ESA here was double point and alpha. Um, 
And when you look at the data here um, for both uh, hemoglobin and MACE, the two co-primary endpoints, you see uh, that um, uh, diprotostat met the criteria for non-inferiority. Uh, and indeed, the drug was approved by the US FDA on first uh, February, 2023 in CKD patients on dialysis. Um, and um, here they defined stable dialysis after 30 days of initiation of dialysis. So the only approved drug in the United States uh, among the HIF-PHI class is Deprotostat and that for uh, stable dialysis patients. Um, a, a trial that was done uh, in the ASCEND uh, trial program, ASCEND-TD, um, looked at trying to simulate how this drug might be used in stable dialysis patients. And here, it was looking at, um, again, comparing with dabapoitin at the conventional ESA, the dose was two to 48 milligrams, um, given three times a week, uh, week. So it's very similar to how you would administer it in stable dialysis patients. And again, hemoglobin was looked at um, and uh, uh, to see if it met the non-inferiority criteria. Uh, and it indeed was non-inferior, uh, the protocept was non-inferior to conventional ESA. Uh, and they appeared to be on a uh, further analysis, significantly higher response rate uh, with Deprotostat uh, compared to ESA in this population. There was no significant difference in incidence of adverse events, although there was a higher rate of stroke in patients treated with Deprotostat. Um, um, when you look at and compare Deprotostat with conventional ESA, you see the responder analysis uh, um, and uh, you see the uh, adverse events uh, very similar, broadly speaking. So let's uh, turn our attention back to our uh, patient case, um, that of Eugene. As you recall, he's a 65-year-old African-American who presents to you uh, with uh, uh, questions around treatment with erythropoietin-stimulating agents and adjusting fine supplementation. And um, the questions are, what do, you, what do we need to consider when choosing treatment options for Eugene? As we discussed based uh, uh, the very beginning on his iron data, uh, it's clear that he has um, depleted iron stores as evidenced by a low um, total ferritin and low TSAT. And so the most immediate um, need here is to supplement um, Eugene's uh, iron stores. And um, the correct treatment there would be the use of uh, intravenous supplementation. And the choice of agent will really depend on uh, what's uh, approved by your institution or the contract with your dialysis provider uh, but in general, you want to give him intravenous iron because there's a block in oral iron absorption uh, in patients and very little of the oral iron, if you administer it orally, would actually uh, uh, work in this patient. What should be the goal for Eugene? Guidelines would say get his hemoglobin above 10 uh, and below 11 if it's in the United States and uh, between 10 to 12 it's, if it's in Europe. In general, uh, Eugene is not going to um, is not going to uh, 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 be able to just have increased iron therapy. You're going to have to think about his uh, ESA therapy. Um, uh, he receives um, um, therapy most likely on dialysis three times a week. But because of his home dialysis status, you may want to consider use of a HIF-PHI. Uh, um, and the only one that's approved in the United States is Deprotostat and can be administered uh, by himself, self-administered. Uh, uh, on at dialysis, it works um, as evidenced by the by the ascend TD trial data. Uh, what counseling needs to be done with Eugene? Um, clearly, 
there are a couple of things uh, one would consider. Uh, important things are to make sure that um, that he's eating well, uh, so he's um, at least being able to replete his iron. You want to make sure he's not getting frequent blood draws and his system, dialysis system, isn't clotting frequently, so there's no blood loss occurring because clearly there seems to be some source of iron uh, loss in him. Uh, you'd want to uh, counsel him on how to use diprotostat. The fact is that uh, diprotostat, if you decided to use that as his uh, treatment, um, you need to tell him that he needs to free uh, monitor his hemoglobin uh, the same way as hemoglobin is monitored with conventional ESA uh, and aiming for a hemoglobin level of between 10 to 11 grams per deciliter. Uh, let's now turn our attention to SMART goals. The acronym stands for Specific, Measurable, Attainable, Relevant, and Timely. In our discussion today, uh, I think we've emphasized the importance of understanding the unmet needs of patients regarding underdiagnosis and undermanagement of anemia in CKD patients on dialysis. We thought uh, about how we utilize this knowledge uh, of the benefit and risks of iron supplementation of ESAs and HIF-PHIs in treatment of anemia in CKD patients during our decision-making process. And then um, I think we've all um, uh, also um, uh, discussed the uh, importance of implementing the clinical data from trials of these novel HIF-PHI treatments uh, uh, and in, uh, with respect to treating eligible patients, uh, these are patients uh, in the US uh, who are stable on dialysis with anemia of CKD, uh, who can benefit from oral therapy. Uh, we've seen from the data from the ASCEND-D trial that any dialysis patient could benefit for, and, and from oral therapy, but probably the sweet spot of patients are the ones on home therapy, those on home dialysis or perineal dialysis. So let's now uh, conclude. Uh, today's CMEO briefcase is part two of a three-part series of case-based activities. I hope you'll check out the other two activities in the series. To receive CME or CE credit for this activity, participants must complete the post-test and evaluation online. Participants will be able to download and print their certificate immediately upon completion. Be safe and take care of yourself so you can provide the best care for your patients. And I want to thank you again for your attention. Goodbye.